Welcome to Solana. We are a super fast blockchain project bringing proof of history and in turn 100,000x speeds to the blockchain ecosystem. This podcast is a discussion between our core staff, industry leaders, and top contributors to our open source project. Find out more at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Solana. Now, on to the show. I am here with one of the co-founders of Solana, Anatoly. How's it going? Hey, it's going well. We're in our San Francisco office. This is the first podcast. We haven't actually set up the studio yet. We're kind of piecing things together. But it's exciting to be out here. We are at New Montgomery and Howard Street, so right downtown in Soma. Yep. Amazing office. We talked with Greg on the last episode about kind of how Solana came together, what it was, and the main question that I still get from people is about the speed, okay. about how it actually works. Do you want to give me the like very basic, how does this actually speed up to this level? And then we'll dive into more. There's a couple aspects to speed, like people focus on TPS, which is transactions per second. You can think of that number as like how many times uh, or how many ways you can, uh, you know, for example, like talk to a database per second. Maybe you do a bunch of reads per second or a bunch of writes per second. And there's different ways to measure all those things. And kind of another interesting number uh, in terms of speed is block time. So Bitcoin block time is notoriously long, 10 minutes. And Ethereum, I think it's about 15 seconds, which is much faster, but still like way too slow for humans. Our block times are 800 milliseconds, and I think we'll ship with 400 milliseconds, which is pretty awesome. And again, all these things are possible because of our this like secret sauce, which is proof of history. I love that we have secret sauce, but it's also open source software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can a, check it out. You can go on the GitHub. You can see how it yeah. works. I'm sure there's a few people listening that actually can can make that happen, but not yeah. many in the world. Yeah. So if you like back up into into history, like the people discovered radio and they started communicating to each other. And um, what they noticed is that if you have two people transmitting over the same frequency at the same time, you get noise. So you get a collision. So the first thing that they did is kind of, first of all, you get kind of a license for a specific frequency. You're the only one that can transmit, but that's only one-way communication. Uh, So if you want to do bi-directional communication over the same frequency, you need people that can um, transmit. And how they organized everyone that was transmitting over the same frequency is by using a clock and then giving them a particular minute or hour or second. And now in a phone, like five millisecond slot when you can actually transmit. So imagine, you know, you have like, what is it? Two billion LTE devices worldwide, but within a tower, you might have hundreds of thousands of these connecting to a single tower and they all want to talk to each other and to talk to other people worldwide. So every five milliseconds, only one of them can transmit over a particular chunk of the frequency that's available. That allows many more participants to send data over the same channel. So once you have a a source of time that's global, that everyone can trust, you can do these kinds of optimizations. Of course, everything in blockchain is harder. The reason why it's harder is because we're trying to build this distributed system where nobody trusts each other, right? Like nobody trusts what you think the right time is and nobody trusts what I think the right time is and everyone is expected to try to cheat. So 
as the story goes, like in 2017, I had too much coffee and I was up till four in the morning. And I had this realization that you can um, use this mechanism called sequential hashing. And if you run this hash function, like a SHA-256, same hash function that Bitcoin uses, you run it over itself. So output is the next input. So imagine this like really, really long chain of these hashes. You can generate a data structure that can only be generated with real-time passing. There's no way for you to spend billions of dollars to make it parallelized and run you know, a million times faster. There's no way for you to find some mathematical function that shortcuts the computation and you can run it instantly. It basically means that if somebody ran this thing and generated this data, that they actually spend some amount of real time doing it. And the amount of time is then limited by the speed of their single threaded, single core CPU. And to build a faster CPU, you need to spend, you know, $20, $40 billion to just get a 50% improvement at, at best, 30 to 50%. So that's our kind of our clock. It's very inaccurate. So you running this hash function and me running this hash function, we're going to get different real-time results. But what matters is that when I present to you a proof that time passed, that you know that I didn't cheat, that I actually spent some real time generating this. And because of this, we can construct a distributed system that treats this data set almost like a, a global water clock. So imagine you have like water dripping and the level's rising and everybody can see that the level's rising and they can trust that real time is passing and then you can start writing software that depends on certain events happening at certain levels in this clock. So at this point, when I'm telling people about it or discussing it, somebody says, what's the catch? So are you not completely decentralized? Is this not really a blockchain? And the um, answer is... Proof of work has this like really awesome property that when you generate a block that it's totally random. What the randomness buys you in some way is um, censorship resistance to some extent and maybe some fault tolerance. So the catches are, and it's very, very simple. The Bitcoin white paper, I think you don't need a computer science degree to, uh, to understand it. Most folks should be able to read it and maybe there's some terms you don't understand, but they're all, um, that I expect anyone to be able to really get it. What we're building because of the optimizations we're doing is just so much more complicated. So the catch is just the software is more complex. I highly recommend everybody read the Bitcoin white paper. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of people have it. And yeah. it's actually just very elegantly written yeah. and, and lovely. You were going to continue on with something or? Yeah. So complexity is that like, is, is a problem because for building this like global distributed financial system, if the design is so hard to understand for everyone, it's hard for people to trust. And therefore it's going to take much longer for us to achieve that kind of level of ubiquitous that Bitcoin has. Greg actually has done a lot of work to help with that. If you guys go to our website, there's a link to a book, like a basically in-depth documentation of every design we've, we have in the system and, you know, reasoning behind them and, and how and why those pieces are there. I've given that book to several friends that are really big into Ethereum and they're trying to understand how we're, we're working. And they'll spend the weekend. I mean, yeah. it's not a light read. 
Yeah. Um, but there's definitely a couple of light bulb moments of like, this is crazy that you were able to figure it out this way. So there's some really interesting tech there. It's a fun read. If you're into yeah. challenging your, your mind, you might have to look up some things, of course. We're coming up to showing this to the world. Yeah. Like we're coming up to this actually not being on testnet and being quite real. Walk me through the next couple months as far as what's going to happen. So start of kind of around Christmas time last year, we were like kind of moving along fairly quickly, but this major piece was missing, which is the fact that previously our testnet was running in, a, in Google Cloud with a single block producer that would just run until failure. And in that, that network, we can demonstrate some really important things that we can get a bunch of transactions to a single node and then replicate them and confirm that all these other machines replicated and ran the exact same transactions and came to the exact same result. And that network could do like 200,000 TPS. It could probably do more. We were saturating the switch and the Google Cloud, um, if you can believe that, <laughs> which is awesome. And distribute the state to 200 machines in 800 milliseconds, get a confirmation back that everything is exactly the same on all the machines. The hard part is taking that thing and making the block producers rotate in such a way that if any of them fail, that the network just continues and moves forward and doesn't have a hiccup. We had a really good design. It was just extremely painful to make the changes such that we could enable this rotation and fault tolerance. And what was crazy is like what was stopping us is like almost 3,000 lines of tests that were verifying the correctness of the system, but doing it in such a way that any minor change would break the tests in this like very brittle way. And the thing wasn't broken, was it wasn't that the test was broken uh, in terms of it was detecting failures. It was the test itself was no longer compatible and broken and you had to go spend a lot of time fixing them. And this is like a big pile of tests and just progress like almost came to a halt. And I try to like just to force it through. And for about a month, we had this like 2000 line PR open and people were arguing and eventually I just deleted the tests. (laughs) 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 This was like kind of a light bulb moment for me. Like people in development talk about technical debt. It was crazy, but our technical debt was in our testing and it took like effectively like I'm the CEO and I can do this, right? <laughs> 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 just kind of just do it, right? Like if we weren't making progress, like in the startup, you're basically failing, right? And after deleting the tests, I think around February, so basically January, we spent trying to move this thing forward. February deleted everything. And in about a month, we had everything up and running. And like effectively made our first stable Byzantine fault tolerance, kind of like this this BFT magic term release that could demonstrate that the network could handle a later failure. And after that, I kind of started sleeping more and we started planning like the next phase of the company and the project. And this is Tour de Soul. We're cycling nerds. Four of the five co-founders are Ironman athletes. Raj, you're next. <laughs> We're making threats. So. Yeah, yeah. Raj is the only one. Not Ma- an marathon is first. Then we'll be <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we decided to uh, kind of follow in the footsteps of Cosmos. I think they trailblazed a lot of like 
the right ways to launch a network. And it's an awesome community. And uh, we're talking to a lot of the validators that are running Cosmos to participate in Tour de Soul. With similar goals, I think our twist in it is we're doing kind of like multiple stages where we're demonstrating our strength, which is latency and performance. And that's actually fairly hard to come up with. How do we measure this thing that is really important to the network and to the users, but each validator and all these other people that are not part of the company anymore, right? This is like a distributed network of people with different interests and different amount of time they can put into this. So we had to like give it some serious thought about how to do that. So Tour de Sol is coming up. You can go to solana.com slash TDS. Very Tour de France of us. Yeah. And it's a pretty niche offering, right? The Tour yep. de Sol event is going to be validators. And if, you, if you're not a validator, this is a fun time to brush off some GPUs and play around. Yep. But that's, that's going to be a small group of people. The broader use of Solana, can we talk a little bit about that? Like in four or five years, how do you see Solana being used? Oh, yeah. So I think crypto winter happened. If, if you're just listening now, you might have not even realized that it happened. But like this last year, people were worried that the whole space is going to die. <laughs> that this was like, oh, you know, Bitcoin hit 20,000 and then it just like went to 3,000. Many people lost a lot of money and like, we're basically done with the space and slowly but surely like you know it didn't die and like kind of came back and like the projects that survived i think are were the top tier projects from 2017 2018 and it's really actually exciting to see so many people launch and start building like you know their their crazy dreams my crazy dream is um i think this idea that you have self-custody that you own your private keys and those keys represent things of value is here to stay. And there's a lot of like flavors of how that's going to be used. I think a lot of companies are going to launch their own blockchains. Facebook is actually launching a, you know, eventually open permissionless network, but Amazon will probably launch something where they're like, Hey, we'll just control this thing forever, (laughs) but you'll still have a public key, right? You'll still have a private key that you own and will still represent value. So imagine like thousands of these settlement chains. I think what's cool about us and what's cool about what we're building is that we can be this really, really low latency, high throughput execution engine. So if you have like, you know, a thousand different settlement platforms, the cool thing to be is the execution and clearing of all these things. Because this idea that if you have ownership and self-custody, it doesn't really matter what ledger the settlement occurs on because I can come to agreement with you about what we're actually going to trade, like whether I give you my digital hat and, you know, Fortnite for your digital gun and uh, whatever the other cool games are. <laughs> and those, those could, the settlement of those things could occur in totally different games, right? Totally different worlds. But us coming together and making those trades and doing that in like this single open market that's borderless, that's really, really fast, that doesn't have any shards, is the really cool thing for us to be in that spot. So everything we're really building is to, you know, make it faster in every way possible, which means reducing latency, so block times of 400 milliseconds, increasing the capacity of the network. Right now we're like 60 to 80,000 TPS. And there's no 
theoretical reason for us not to do 800,000 TPS. It's just blood, sweat, and tears, right, of engineering. Like, <laughs> if you look at, like, some of the folks working in our performance stuff, it's just, like, constantly, like, running experiments and looking at resource graphs from, like, the Linux kernel about where every latency is, like, being hit and, like, where memory is taking longer than expected and, and trying to figure out how do we move information faster through silicon? In a tongue-in-cheek way, we named this podcast No Sharding. Yeah. You just mentioned sharding for the first time. Let's dive in. What is sharding? Why is the podcast named No Sharding? So sharding, like the, the way most people have interacted with it, is that Intel in like the end of the 90s and early aughts, they ran into a problem where they couldn't really increase clock speeds anymore. The fabrication process, while it could reduce the, the smallest possible feature, like from, I think, 20 to 10 nanometers, it couldn't really increase clock speeds anymore because um, that requires uh, higher voltages and more heat, and the materials just couldn't really handle that. So they started shipping chips with single piece of silicon with multiple CPUs on them. And like the first design of a multi-core system was basically like, hey, let's just stick two Intel CPUs of the same die. <laughs> and the problem there is that when you do this kind of splitting, the sharding, the state that each CPU is running is not synchronized. So you have this big pile of memory, like your RAM, you know, that is the single source of truth. And then bits of it are sent to the CPU and the CPU makes changes to that and then sends them back. But now we have two CPUs that are trying to change the exact same global big pile of RAM. If they're not synchronized, then they may do changes that are not consistent. So they have to do a big pile of work to try to figure out that only one CPU processes parts of the state that the other one isn't touching. And if they are touching, then they have to do this really, really slow and expensive synchronization stuff. And that is really the core problem with sharding. Like I spent the last five years of my career at Qualcomm basically dealing with this. Your mobile processor, like your ARM device on your Android phone, has a bunch of cores. All of them are constantly fighting each other. And anytime you're trying to do anything fast, you have to go and ask all the other cores, hey, are you touching any of this memory? If so, like, we have to slow everything down and then go clear the caches. And it's like a massively complex problem. So when I talked about complexity, what's the trade-off between us and Bitcoin? Yeah, we're more complicated, but wait until you deal with any system that implements sharding. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is like another order of magnitude and complexity. And the only thing you're getting there is being able to do more things in parallel. But because you're separating state, what you're actually building is almost like separate blockchains that to synchronize, they have to go through some third mechanism. So in, in Ethereum, they go through the beacon chain and that takes, I think Ethereum, that might take six hours. So it's really, really slow, right? So effectively those applications are kind of segregated from each other. We have like just one giant big pile of state and a bunch of GPUs to churn through it. So applications that want to talk to each other can do that in any transaction without actually needing to wait. So that is like the big difference. Yeah. The reason why like we went this path is because I just didn't even think of it. 
<laughs> as soon as I had this idea that we have a source of time, that actually set us down this road of we don't need sharding. Because we have the source of time that's our synchronization point, everything else can then be designed for speed using the traditional optimizations techniques, which is use as many local CPU cores or GPU cores as you can to do as many things per second. I like it. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think it's funny that one of the main reasons we don't use it is just not needed. I mean, it's it's being introduced to a lot of crypto projects just to speed it up because you're, you're having very simple projects totally blow the network. But the thing is, you can't really like even compare like a TPS of a sharded chain with the non-sharded one. Because what you're talking about is yeah, like, okay, so you can do, like, you know, with Ethereum and a million shards, you can do, you know, 10 million things per second. But if you have to talk between two different shards and it takes six hours to synchronize, how often is that going to happen? How expensive is that going to be? Reality is that for us, because all these shards are still blockchains that are open, we can be the execution layer where those applications can talk to each other a lot faster <laughs> without needing to wait six hours. And the complexity there and like the costs there are basically how you handle risk and how you financially secure the risk of those transfers. And that's still not trivial, but I think it's less technologically complex and more transparent to humans. Like imagine like I have some, you know, digital hat in Fortnite and uh, a sword on World of Warcraft and we want to trade it. Using Solana, you can use some native token, like our Lamports is what we call our, our way or Satoshis, to basically agree that, hey, you and I are going to do this trade, and here's some Lamports to guarantee that we're not going to back out in the middle of it or try to screw each other. And that's a very transparent and simple way to do things that doesn't require the technical complexity of dealing with cross-shirt application transfers. I honestly suspect that the cost of doing cross-shard transactions is going to be quite expensive in terms of gas fees because you're effectively paying Ethereum 1.0 gas fees to do this. We'll dive into talking about gas fees and yeah. a lot of other topics in future podcasts. Blockchain um, is so complicated. It's crazy. <laughs> hopefully speed will simplify it. Yeah. So that's my big wish. Wrapping up the podcast, the final thing I'd like to talk about is the San Francisco office. So if you're if you're in Soma, if you're walking down Howard Street, you've probably seen our office from the outside. Yeah. We're going to start hosting a lot of events here. So we've got some ideas on that. We're also doing podcasts. Yep. So if you have any of your heroes that you want to hear from, and I don't want to do a podcast where it's like, how did you get into crypto? You know, like I actually want to talk about deep dives into tech. Um, so if you have any ideas on that, please email us at podcast at Solana.com. We'll get back to you. So I think the challenge is for the community, let's challenge the community right now. You're listening to this podcast. My biggest challenge is to get on Discord. Like check out the, the GitHub book, I think, if you want to read Greg's yep. um, writing on that. Jump on Discord. We're a super friendly group of people, but that's a really fun thing to do. And then we are doing one final thing, which is Tour de Soul. So hop it on it. And uh, after that, we've got uh, any other challenges for the community? There's a bunch of uh, good first issues in all our GitHub projects. Just try one. Like, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that you're rewarded, you know? <laughs>
Yeah. We'll notice you. We'll say thanks. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get you a nice cycling cap. Yeah, we should get cycling caps. Yeah, for sure. Good uh, swag. Thank you so much, Anatoly. Anything else you'd like to say? No, that's it. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for joining us on No Sharding. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any questions for our guests or want to continue this discussion, please check out our website at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. There are links to our Discord where most of our communication happens in the company. Also, you should check out our GitHub page where we post all of our code for you to check out and even help out with. GitHub.com slash Solana dash labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at Solana. Thanks for listening. See you next week.